Hi, and welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This time, Eric Hoffman and Nick Hanover join me to discuss Matt Wagner's Grendel. We talk about about 25 issues of the original Grendel series, including some of the earliest work by Matt Wagner, as well as some of the later work he did, which was pretty transcendently wonderful. In between, we talk about uh, runs by the Panda Brothers and Bernie Miro. It's an interesting hour and 20 minutes or so discussing some of the more intriguing comics of their era. It's fun to revisit them. Highly recommend you do that as well. We will be kind of interspersing these with my conversations with Amir Malikpour about uh, Jack Kirby's New Gods and the larger Fourth World storyline. Hope you enjoy today's episode. It starts right after this ad. So welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I'm Jason Sachs. I'm Eric Hoffman. I'm Nick Hanover. And we are discussing Matt Wagner's classic comic, Grendel. So um, Eric, why don't you tell me how you first discovered Grendel? I first discovered Grendel reading Matt Wagner's Mage series, the first series of Mage. So this would have been probably... At the uh, beginning of about 1987, when I was the tender age of 11. And Nick, how about you? I'm pretty sure that I first came across Grendel um, when I was in high school because I had gone to a uh, half-price books uh, near my house in Houston, and they had a big box of just, like, miscellaneous comics that had come in and I heard one of the staff complaining about having to sort through all the junk in there and I convinced him to sell me the whole box for like 20 bucks or something (laughs) and there was a bunch of like early Comico Grindel in there Um, I think like I'm trying to remember what all was in there but I, I remember just being really drawn in by the the cover art I know one of them was the like Dean Motter, um, Hernandez brothers, like era of stuff. And mm-hmm. pretty sure that was like early exposure to Hernandez brothers for me too. Yeah. Grendel was definitely a, a, a gateway drug for me and decidedly different in tone from mage. I don't know that the guy who sold me the issue of mage quite knew the content uh, that was in the back pages of that issue. Um, he, he may have thought twice selling it to an 11 year old, but uh, it was definitely eye opening for me. And uh, I had no idea. I, I came into it sort of midway through the devil by the deed storyline. So it was very difficult to get my grounding. I didn't really have any understanding of the backstory. And in fact, the whole reason that I started reading mage is, um, there were some back issues in the dollar bin at my local comic shop and it looked interesting. And I think I started with mage about halfway through that series as well. So I had no real frame of reference for either one of the storylines. I just love the artwork. I love the story and I was hooked and I've been a Matt Wagner fan ever since. Yeah. I, I think I picked up an early issue of Grendel at my local shop just a little bit older than you, Eric. 
and uh, one of the original Comico published comics, which is really just a black and white comic, very the same quality as some of the later 80s um, comics, um, and then fell away from the book. And then once Mage started getting some buzz in the fan press, I picked it up, yeah, around issue eight or nine of that run. That book was so accessible and fun, light color, happy energy um, battles that were just kind of wacky. Yes. And the backup of Grendel was so dark and kind of mysterious. Right. Right. And um, so let's let's start by talking about the original three and a half issues Wagner did for Comico. I know you've recently read those, Eric. Yeah, it's it's hard not to when you talk about Grendel, it's hard not to talk about. Uh, Kamiko, uh, because the history of Grendel is so intertwined with that company and uh, Matt Wagner's career as well. He went to college at at the uh, Philadelphia School of Art with uh, Philadelphia College of Art. I'm sorry, with uh, Jerry Javinko and and Bill Cucinata. I think I'm pronouncing those names correctly. Uh, who were two of the co-founders of Kamiko and along with Phil Lasorda, and uh, he was just a struggling artist who he knew them personally. And when they started this company, they had a anthology title. Uh, a lot of those um, upstart uh, comic companies that were getting going uh, thanks to the direct market, like First and Pacific, had these anthology titles where they would showcase new talent. And Matt, Matt Wagner was one of them. And uh, uh, it was in Kamiko Primer number two, which now on eBay fetches something like $1,500 a copy. Is it that much now? Wow. Amount. Yeah. Uh, so it's his first published work, and it was Grendel. Um, I, I don't know how long that installment was, but I, I think it was only maybe eight, ten pages, something like that. Uh, and it was, I, I guess it got enough of a good reaction that they decided to do what I think they intended to be an ongoing series just judged by the content of those issues um so you know i didn't read these issues until the grendel archives came out in uh that would have been the 25th anniversary of grendel uh it was published by dark horse dark horse who took over publication of grendel after kamiko went belly up um in, There's a uh, whole complicated story behind that. Very complicated story about that, right. Yeah, which we won't go into right now, um, not to front load the conversation too much. That's something we can talk about maybe in the next episode uh, of this series. But uh, I, I wasn't very well impressed by the Grendel Archive stuff. I mean, it's very amateurish, and he definitely shows his growing pains uh, in these comics. Um, I can see why they didn't really continue with it. I don't know the particulars of why uh, the series didn't go on, um, other than that I think Kamiko was undergoing some sort of restructuring things as a company. They were deciding to do color books, and I think Matt Wagner wanted to explore his Mage series, or that would have been a better fit for what they were trying to do as a company. So Grendel sort of took a back seat until he decided to 
conclude the narrative that he set up in these original three issues in the back pages of Mage and to do it in an incredibly experimental way that was just light years ahead of the stuff that's in the original three and a half issues, which, you know, like I said, they show the his growing pains as an artist, so it's interesting in that way to see that. And, and he, in his introduction to the archives, in fact says he's not he didn't reprint he didn't withhold these from being reprinted for out of any embarrassment um he you know he 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 kind of he kind of felt that the the um devil by the deed storyline was sufficient for the fans for the you know for the storyline as he wanted to continue it but when the time came uh, for them to reprint it with Dark Horse, he had no hesitation in reprinting it, and I think he probably took some enjoyment out of <laughs> seeing how far he has uh, come as an artist. There's definitely that, a manga influence I've noticed in these uh, comics, um, which is yeah. certainly a mark of the times because manga was just uh, starting to infiltrate or you know, American culture in the late seventies, early eighties. So it's definitely of its time in that sense that it was influenced by, uh, this, you know, manga art. There's, there's some of them, some of the artwork in there is just explicitly manga manga influence. Yeah. Especially the Pander brothers stuff. Right. And there's also, you know, behind the character, there's also the, all of these other pulp influences that I think are worth, addressing because they really feed into what he does with the character and how he sort of uh, experiments with or exploits the whole notion of the pulp hero. I mean, you know, characters like Zorro, the Shadow, the Green Hornet, um, Dr. Midnight, even Batman, especially Batman, which we can get into more. But I'd be very interested to hear what you guys have, what you guys think of these early issues. Yeah, the earliest issues are... You know, clearly amateur, and as you say, Wagner doesn't really uh, argue that they're worth reading or that they're worth skipping. He just kind of says, this is something I did at the time, and I'm proud of them for being the best I could do at the time. Um, and uh, the first three and a half issues are just fine from that standpoint. They're no more or less amateur than anything else. What's remarkable to me is how quickly his style grew. So that right. by the time we get to uh, Devil by the Deed, which is, um, by the way, the the uh, Grendel Omnibus and the first three and a half issues are not included in the Grendel Omnibuses. The Grendel Omnibus kicks off with Devil by the Deed, which is essentially a proper retelling of the story he was going to tell in right. the original Comico series or Comico series. Um, and that work is um, really interesting. You can still, it's still, you can tell it's, work by a relatively young creator, but at the same yeah. time, he's playing with a lot of really interesting storytelling tropes. For one thing, uh, the work is very art deco, deco oriented. And for another, it's written in this kind of detached way, like a novel or by his, a memoir, essentially, written by Christine Spar, who we will soon find out. Those the, <laughs> those the character that uh, Nick was just referencing. Yeah, and I, I, the Art Deco stuff's like a big part of what drew me in when I was first finding it because um, when I had first found this stuff, it was when I was kind of like coming back to comics after 
leaving, like not being as interested in it and being more interested in music. And the the covers looked more like album art. And I believe Wagner and Dean Motter, I don't know if Wagner has like an actual background in design, but I know Dean Motter does. And like seeing that stuff and then Love and Rockets as well, like just kind Mm -hmm. of like all together in this like box. (laughs) It was just like, oh, there's like a whole other realm of comics that I can get to. It was like a, a very early gateway drug for like indie comic stuff to me because the indie comics that I'd seen before were, I guess, stuff like TMNT and uh, a lot of the like real, real, real rough stuff that did not necessarily have like a very striking design aesthetic to it. Like it it looked roughshod and was usually trying to imitate like a superhero thing or parody superheroes, you know. But this had a very clear design aesthetic. Yeah. Which couldn't help but drag you into it. Um, the the color palette is red, white, and black. He deliberately throws Art Deco elements into the work. Um, well, uh, just to to correct you, initially, uh, the, the color was not the red, white, and black. It was... Uh, a color that he was using at the same time, which was an uh, airbrush coloring. Mm. Uh, he was using it at the same time in mage. And in the initial reprinting of Devil by the Deed, which was in a you know, European format uh, graphic album, as they were called at the time, um, it was reprinted that way. And, and, and I can see why they ended up doing the, repr- the recolorings. There was an initial recoloring that was done by uh, Bernie Moreau, who we'll talk about later, uh, the Canadian artist Bernie Moreau, and uh, someone else, who was it? Catherine Delany. Uh, they recolored it for a reprinting that Dark Horse did in the late 90s when Dark Horse took okay. publication. And they did a fantastic job emulating the original airbrush colorings that Wagner did. Uh, and then, uh, subsequent to that, it was recolored a third time in the black, white, and red style that the Hunter Rose storylines came to be associated with because of those uh, black, white, and red and red, white, and black miniseries that Dark Horse did in, I think it was the early 2000s or the late 90s or both. And um, that color palette actually was started. You mentioned Dean Motter, Nick, and one thing that Kamiko did was a Kamiko collection, which collected uh, all of their titles at the time in a slipcase. And the sell point on that was that you got a original 16 page red, white, and black Grendel story that was illustrated by Dean Motter. Yeah. Written by Matt Wagner, uh, which was the only place that you could get that. Now, Dark Horse subsequently <laughs> reprinted that 16 pager uh, in the black, white, and red, or red, white, and black series, too you know, give it some kind of continuity there. It's actually more technically red, white, black, and gray, but yeah, <laughs> I think that was the one yeah, that the I initial, like first yeah. saw was that, cause I think it was that, that Comico, uh, sampler thing. Cause that, you know, when it was originally published, it, it almost looked like stained glass really. Um, the, yeah. by the storyline, um, and really interesting, uh, page layouts where it, it almost eschewed the whole idea of, um, of, of, um, uh, geez, I'm sorry, guys, <laughs> of, um, panels. Right. Uh, 
Yeah, and and no panels, no word balloons. So it's sort of working against that whole idea of uh, the comic as a series of panels with word balloons and instead presented it as uh, a continuous illustration that did have more or less panels, but they were all worked into the overall structure of the page. So it was a really unique uh, uh, method of telling a story, and really unlike anything I'd seen in any other comic, especially at 11 years of age, you know, where I'd been reading primarily Transformers and G.I. Joe or Captain America off the newsstands at the local drugstore. So it was very eye-opening. Yeah, because even those, like, original Pander Brothers cover designs, they feel closer to, like, video game box art of the time mm-hmm. to me mm-hmm. than than to anything else. Like, because I, it's hard for me to remember which, which one specifically I picked up because, like I said, it was just kind of like a very scattershot collection. Um, and, like, looking over the covers now because now all my Grendel stuff is an omnibus and I'm, like, looking through, like, some of the, the, the actual, like, original covers and seeing how many different styles there were, which I think is also, like, part of the appeal of Grendel on the whole for me is that um, even though there's a continuity to it, I like that not only did the styles change in terms of art, but also like the storytelling and you get everything from like pulp adventuring to like cyber things in the future and like all kinds of like stuff from different eras. And I like that too, because it felt like no matter where you dove in, you were getting kind of like a contained story uh, that could go off in all kinds of different directions. Even what he did with, changing the artist to suit the Mm -hmm. storyline anticipated what Neil Gaiman would do with Sandman and several other series have done the same thing where they take the load off the artist and at the same time create a cohesiveness to each of the chapters or storylines that are in a continuing series and I think Grendel to my mind was one of the first series to do that it was the first, as far as I know, and you consider that to be a real innovation of the series. Yeah, and I, I always associated Matt Wagner with Vertigo, even though I don't, I don't think he did very many Vertigo series, but like his, uh, his approach, especially on Grendel, it felt like it was a big influence on like Sandman Mystery Theater that came later, and uh, even Hellblazer that. Did Wagner did Wagner ever do anything on on Hellblazer? Yeah, not on no. Hellblazer, no. But it uh, feels like his his style is like an influence on that series too, because that series is also like very um, you know, rotating teams and has a mixture of different eras, and the the style always kind of shifts depending on who's involved. Yeah, uh, and a morally am- ambiguous um, main character as well. To yeah, beast. Grendel is uh, so morally ambiguous. Yeah. It's not outright. And morally either. bankrupt, perhaps. Well, and, and if we're talking about Hunter Rose, he's maybe more um, morally complex. But by the time we get to the idea of the Grendel spirit being a force for evil, um, it is unambiguously maybe not evil, but totalitarian or dominating or I guess evil yeah, is well, the right word. Right. Matt Wagner said this that the overarching theme for Grendel as a whole was a study of the nature of aggression, which I always thought was quite interesting. If you were to distill it 
where Mage, for example, was a study of the nature of the hero. Uh, Grendel seems to be the study of the nature of the villain. And you mentioned Sandman Mystery Theater, which again is uh, a, a continues on with Wagner's obsession with pulps and that whole section of literature having to do with uh, someone who is morally ambiguous, who is engaged in some kind of dark, you know, adventure uh, just under the noses of the police or working in the shadows, that sort of thing. And again, that fits in with uh, a whole number of different pulp uh, characters, like um, one that always comes up in discussions that Wagner has with interviewers is uh, Diabolique, who is a, oh, yeah. an Italian comic book series about a, a criminal mastermind and his adventures. And Hunter Rose certainly fits the uh, criminal mastermind mold. You know, he's the gentleman mm-hmm. criminal. He wears tuxedos and reads great literature and goes to sophisticated parties among the upper echelons of society. Uh, but at the same time, he's also this masked, you know, uh, criminal demon who's merciless killer. And uh, yeah, it's the high and low, I think, that makes right. him such an interesting character. And again, it, and it's also that the uh, the shadow, Lamont Cranston, and then, of course, uh, Bruce Wayne and Batman. Well, it's funny, too, because like with Sam and Mystery Theater, that that feels like almost like a, a flip of Grindel because it's a similar realm. Uh, but, you know, it like it's exploring it from the the polar opposite side of what Grindel does. Um, but they're covering similar themes because like so much of Grindel is about like corruption and seizing power through illicit means and being right. able well, to like. Sandman is 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 sort of the the opposite of Grendel. He's he's the masked adventurer, but he's the good guy in that case. Right. And he also doesn't have a certain amount of personal license. He is, um, it's the spirit of uh, Morpheus that kind of empowers him to take these actions. The same way that Grendel empowers Christine Spar and sadly Brian Lee Sung to do the same things. That's true. That's true. So they really that's are kind of flip sides of each other. It, that's true. It, it's so downplayed in Sandman Mystery Theater, the whole Sandman Morpheus subplot. I mean, it is there, but it's so far in the background that I, you know, I almost forget it's there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to be reminded. But you're right. Well, and it's a, it, it, it kind of uses that just as like a jumping off point too, because like I, I feel like in the original, it's been a while since I read the original Sandman, but it's almost like a, something that's like mentioned in like a panel, like just kind of like tossed off to the side that Morpheus uh, was like influencing that era of stuff from afar. And so no, I, that's, <laughs> that's fair. It, it's uh, it's the indirect influence. And I mean, the heart of Sandman is the relationship between Wesley and Diane. Yeah. Yeah. The whole like uh, um, Nick and Nora sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's a very interesting, complex relationship. But we're going a little bit afield. Um, <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned, uh, Jason, the, how, how the character evolved. And with any long-running series like this, there's going to be 
developments and and necessarily as an artist Matt Wagner grew and you know matured as an artist and also as a writer uh and so I think he came to have a more deeper understanding of the Grendel character where at first Grendel was just supposed to be the masked identity of Hunter Rose this you know diabolic criminal mastermind uh it evolved into this what you said where it became this demonic spirit uh that essentially possessed individuals and then gradually as the series went on it be- became where Grendel possessed a whole society or, or all of civilization became more or less possessed by Grendel. Yeah, and we'll get to that in the next episode. Um, let's keep it on just um, the Hunter, uh, Christine, and Brian episodes, just for the sake of keeping this conversation focused, if you don't mind. It's it's, easy, it's very easy to go afield with this. Yeah, yeah, great. There's so much with Grendel, it could go anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Uh, you know, like the, but you know, there was always sort of a magical um, background to the series, even in the, you know, at the very start, you had a werewolf, for all intents and purposes, as one of the major characters, Argent, who was Grendel's arch enemy, and you know, the inspiration Wagner said at one point was as simple as he took the name Grendel from Beowulf. So who else would be Grendel's foe other than a wolf, you know, just playing on the words. And he came up with this character of Argent, who's a uh, native American who became possessed by a a spirit, uh, a native American spirit in that case. And he became this, you know, um, werewolf, uh, you know, kind of like a Wendigo sort of uh, mm-hmm. Native American myth- mythological creature. And the Devil by the Deed storyline always sort of, you know, it's ultra realistic except for that one character. Uh, but somehow Wagner manages to pull it off. And and the whole Devil by the Deed uh, storyline um has this very uncomfortable subtext of, of, um, I, I, you know, I, not to mince words, but, of of pedophilia Mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, I know Wagner meant it to be that Stacy Palumbo, this young woman whose, uh, father, he, he murdered, uh, uh, by poisoning in order to take over his business apparatus um and then he ended up taking her in as her as his ward it's meant to be i think suggestive of bruce wayne and uh robin um but there's this very uncomfortable subtext of he's a very young man i think he's only 17 at the time that he yeah I think he, I think the devil by the deed he says he's eighteen and it was an unusual age for him to adopt. Right, but he managed to convince the courts to grant him protection of her on the basis of his, you know, considerable quali- character, <laughs> which I think was funny. Um, which he then but, exploits in a novel, which he writes right, over he writes three days. Novel, it's all chickadee. very my little chickadee of all things. Yeah, which you know, I mean, it's so on the nose. And then, uh, you know, he himself was 
deflowered and taught by this uh, woman, Jocasta Rose, whose name he ended up taking as his own, because his mm-hmm. real name is Eddie. Uh, but uh, he was this very extremely gifted young man who excelled at everything he did. We all know people like that, and we hate them. And he, <laughs> <laughs> and he, um, he Sorry, met her. Dude. She was like a fencing coach or something like that. Yeah. And uh, they fell in love, and she deflowered him. I think she was 36, and he's 14. It seems so, right. So, you know, there's this whole pattern of sort of underage, this sort of uncomfortable underage uh, relationships taking place throughout that storyline. And, you know, I know the mid-'80s were a much different world now than they – I mean, we're a much different world than now. But reading this story now, it definitely – sort of gives one pause where it is really uncomfortable in the current environment to read this sort of thing. And you kind of have to wonder, like, I don't know, it, does it, does he pull it off? I mean, is it, is it successful story storytelling? I mean, artwork aside and, and the experimentalism aside, and, and as impressive as that is, the story itself hinges on these relationships like between Stacy and Hunter or even Stacy and Argent because she befriends him and that ends up becoming Hunter Rose's downfall at the end. I mean, is it successful? Do you guys feel when you read it, do you feel like he pulled it off? Like it was, you know, a, a successful storyline? Well, Stacy is crushed by the end of it. She's literally insane. They sent her into a, an asylum and um, she, she marries her therapist, has a baby with him. And then um, basically lives the rest of her life in deep and deep days in haggard melancholy. Yeah, well, her husband, which rendered her unstable up to her death twenty five years later. Um, so she is she's a victim of all this shit. In that way, that actually felt really contemporary to me because she's playing this game because she doesn't know any better. And then once it, the reality of it comes true to her, she is just crushed by it. I, I also kind of wonder, like, what was going on in that era where that was like a thing in so many of these books? Because that's also kind of happening in Dark Knight Returns. And then it's also, I, I would argue that out of all those, Scout is probably the one that handles it the best. But um, oh, Tim Truman, yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, like, in, in Scout, that's like a whole like plot line, and Scout keeps like shutting down the the young woman who's trying to, I think, is like, sees him as like one of the only good male figures in her life. But, but it is, it's kind of odd to me that so much of like eighties and early nineties comics have that going on. So I'm kind of curious about it. Um, Yeah. I could explain it in a way for the early nineties comics, but not so much for the stuff for like, you know, dark Knight returns or, or Grendel, which were mid eighties, but in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, there was the whole satanic uh, cults and child abuse uh, hysterias that got right. going in the media and, uh, you know, were fed in part by, you know, talk shows and people were suddenly remembering that they were abused as children and, and it turned out they were inventing these abuses out of whole cloth. and a lot Yeah, of that's people, right. I forgot that that, know, that whole thing had that gone came on. That came later, though. I You know, I don't know. Sometimes I read this stuff and I wonder if they're our artists aren't not picking this up just <laughs> ahead of schedule. Yeah. Anticipating it, you know. 
but yeah, I mean, I do think that like it, Grindel is trying to kind of explore the, the there's a, a through line in Grindel of like uh, inherited toxicity, you know, because it, it gets into it with right. Christine, with her like taking on the mantle of Grindel, like getting even more into it than Hunter Rose was. Um, so I feel like there's something that Matt Wagner is trying to convey there about how you either weaponize the, the things that you inherit or you're destroyed by them or both. Yeah. Let's talk about the first 12 issues of Grendel. This seems like an opportune moment to transition to that. The Christine Spar issues. Yeah. So she's the daughter who came from. Stacy Palumbo being essentially raped by her therapist. She also ostensibly wrote the memoir Devil by the Deed. And then, right. um, interestingly, Grendel Omnibus Number Two starts with Stacy's story, and then goes into uh, Christine Spar's story. Yeah, the only the only story that wasn't written by Matt Wagner was the two issue Stacy Palumbo, and I don't I think it's called Devil's Child. Mm-hmm. And it was written by Diana Schultz, who's his yep. sister-in-law. Who who's was, been Wagner's editor for 25 yeah. years. Yeah. And illustrated by Tim Sale, who also uh, we'll talk about later. In the in a future episode. Um, yeah, I remember reading the, that Grendel series as it was coming out and loving it. Love the energy of it. Love the artwork of it by uh, the Pander Brothers. Um, was intrigued by the world she felt herself drawn into. It felt like nothing else on the stands. Reading it now, it feels remarkably shallow to me. I was surprised how much I didn't enjoy it. And there's a big, enormous, terrible hole at the center of the story to me that I think an adult Wagner would have been able to embrace but um the young matt wagner who wrote that series in 1986 or 87 just didn't get there because at the heart of the book um is christine who um is widowed and who has a son who's elementary school age her son is kidnapped and soon killed and her reaction to the kidnapping and murder is so shallow i want to use i hate to use that same word again so kind of she moves on so quickly that I felt it really extremely off-putting, like inhuman in a way. And right. because of that, the book felt insubstantial. Like the, the core of the book, the thing that should have been the most important force in the book, just felt really, really insubstantial to me. And I'm curious if you felt the same way. It, it kind of feels like Wagner was wanting to get to the action sooner and... Like, I agree with you that, like, a later in Wagner's career, he would have explored it in more depth. But in this, it felt like he wanted to basically use it as, like, the inciting incident and have an excuse for her to essentially transform into what she becomes. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree that it, it doesn't really develop at the, <laughs> the same speed that it probably should have to really hit with the right weight, you know, but... But I think it's because he he's just trying to. It seems like what he really wants to tackle in it is the you know the subject of like becoming addicted to violence and power and mm-hmm. you know 
it just right. felt the entire time like he could an older grand older Wagner who obviously had children since his son works for, with him now um, would have treated the whole subject matter very differently. Yeah, I agree. It's probably my least favorite of the Grundle iterations that we're going to discuss, and largely for that reason, just because, as you said, Jason, what should be the the crux of the matter becomes almost an afterthought, and it's such a betrayal of good storytelling that it's just so glaring it it really as you said it just sort of ruins your enjoyment of it because you're almost the entire time you're reading it you're just going well wait a minute what about her son (laughs) (laughs) you know i i mean uh the the whole thing with uh, with the it's set in the future it's i was going to ask about that is it is it that Right. Go ahead. 2005. Okay. Which was 20 years into the future still when it uh, began to be published around 20 years. Uh, the style that's utilized, again, like you guys said, is much different from Devil by the Deed. Uh, much more um, standard comic book storytelling. Word balloons, yeah. frames. I mean, everything is... It's very standard, and I mean it's it's not it's not uh, poor work. I mean the and the Panda Brothers artwork also develops as the storyline goes along. And in fact, there's one issue I can think of. I think it's issue eight or nine. It's entirely wordless, and it's a really great uh, wordless comic. I, I think there was a thing with wordless comics at the time. There seemed to be a yeah. lot of them, um, but they they pull it off, and uh, so you know. Their effective artists, their, their, their artwork is very 80s, and it does remind me a lot of that New York artist, I think or I think it was a New York artist based, uh, Patrick Nagel, whose women, yeah. paintings of women were seen like everywhere in the 80s. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but, you know, there's the... Nagel's you know, the one who did the Duran Duran cover art, right? Yeah, Duran Duran right, exactly. Rio, right? Rio, right, yeah. It has that, um, I guess, that quality of that I can appreciate of, uh, I, I don't know if there's a word for it, but the future that was seen in the past. Uh, right. You know. <laughs> um, Retro future. So preach, right. And, and it always has the quality of the era that it, you know, the future is being predicted upon. So uh, it definitely has that quality, and I can appreciate that. But just as pure storytelling, I think it falls flat on its face. And, uh the whole, the whole plot with Tajiro, who's this Kabuki actor who abducted her son and is eating his eyeballs, and uh, you know it turns out he's a uh, vampire. Uh, you know that's interesting on the surface of it, but it doesn't really go anywhere. There's a mm-hmm. confrontation about three fourths of the way through the twelve issue run, and then he sort of leaves the stage. You know, he turns into a cat first, and then he, <laughs> he's gone. <laughs> and then it becomes the battle between Christine Spar and Argent, uh, which has been sort of a subplot up until that point, where Argent knows that this woman, uh, Christine Spar, has stolen Grendel's mask and his trident from um, a museum, 
which I thought was an interesting foreshadowing of how how culture was sort of uh, um, already um, worshipping Grendel in a way, in the sense yeah. that his mask and trident were in a museum, you know, for people to look at and gawk at. And so he had already sort of entered the pop culture, which is a theme that Wagner explores in much greater depth later in the series. But there's this confrontation then between her and Argent. And like you said, Nick, I, I think he felt like he had all of these bullet points he needed to cross off, you know, that he needed to accomplish uh, a confrontation with Tajiro, some sort of resolution with that plot, and then also the plot between her and Argent and to sort of get that out of the way. And it se- almost seemed like it was a paint-by-numbers and he had to fill these in and get them out of the way, and it almost seemed like he was constrained by his own plot line. Um, yeah, and, like he didn't and quite and think everything no through as much as he right? wanted to, right? Yeah, and then you don't you don't really get the character development you want. You don't really get the sort of emotional resolutions that you need for the storyline to be impactful. Do you think like maybe it was that he didn't think that Grindel as a series was going to be able to last? Like, I don't know what the the marketplace was like at the time, but like, do you think maybe it was just thing of like I have to get this all out because I don't know how long I'm going to get to do this for? I read it more as him just not quite having all his sea legs under him still right. a young creator not quite knowing what he was doing he'd all i mean he had just nailed it with uh mage mage ran 15 issues um was a, and was a bestseller for its time so i think he felt like this series was going to last it almost reads to me like he just didn't think it all the way through or maybe his attitude changed in the middle or something do you think, well, I guess with Mage, too, there was also the autobiographical component yeah. of it, which, you know, in the whole write what you know sense, it's probably a little bit easier to wrangle that. Whereas Grindel is like a sprawling historical work that goes off in like so many different realms. And I don't know how how much of a awareness he had of like where he was eventually going to want to take it. But, you know, I could see like in the same sense of like a band doing their first album, it's full of all these like great ideas that they'll then revisit later and hopefully refine over time. But, you know, there is that like energy of like the debut album that's just like all over the place. Yeah, I see that a lot in this. Yeah, we just threw a lot of ideas on the page and uh, there's even and a moment didn't really have the discipline to tie them together. Sorry, Eric, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. There's even a moment later in the series it's very subtle there's one frame where there's a poster on a wall and it says rem 2007 not dead yet tour yeah (laughs) and i and that was the first instance i could see of wagner playing with the whole you know futuristic setting and having some fun with it which he will you know do much more of later in the series. Uh, so so there are there are little instances where you you get a taste of what, you know, <laughs> what's to come uh, later in the series. Uh, but it doesn't seem fully formed yet. He's pretty prophetic about R.E.M. there, too. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there's even little I, I did like there were 
some off lines that uh, uh, Captain Wiggins is this detective who has it in for Christine Spar, who's obsessed with with Grendel, and he becomes a, a main character later in the series in the last um, arc that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, and at one point he says to, I think it's Brian Lee Sung, Christine's boyfriend, yeah. that what he wants to do most is to uh, suck margaritas on a cop pension someday. <laughs> cop, of course, is an acronym for Confederacy of Police. Um, uh, yeah, and we, then later in, in the last arc, we're literally talk, doing that. Yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. He's on a beach sucking down margaritas. So, you know, I mean, there's some nice little touches there. Sure. Yeah. And um, there's resonances all through. Uh, and I I don't want to make it sound like this is a bad comic book. It is a very enjoyable comic book. It's a lot of fun. Um, but it's not great. And um, I felt like it was just a little more shallow than I had hoped it to be. I also had this very strange thing where I read the last couple issues late at night and somehow really didn't pick up on the climactic battle. Like the book ends in this very kind of abrupt, unfulfilling sort of way. Right. And and you're left with the setup for the next story arc, which is Brian Lee Sung the San Francisco stage manager for the Kabuki theater who's now stuck in New York sitting on a park bench in central park, writing in his journals. And that's it. And that's the end. And there's, and there's really no denouement other than that. And- it's this violent death where both she and Arjun are killed. I hope I didn't give anything away there, but there doesn't seem to be any, no lessons learned, you know, no, no, no real contemplation of what's unfolded. And, um, you know, we actually do see Argent dead. I feel like we didn't quite get, well, I guess we did get the full death scene we wanted from Christine. It just feels like he almost ran out of time. Right. But again, that, that, that illustrates the the difficulty I think he had with the structure of this, and it, I really don't think that that it was very well planned out, or it was planned out, but it just didn't really fit together. It almost seemed like uh, there were several different storylines taking place, and none of them seemed to have really much to do with the other. Yeah. I mean, to me, this is like a solid B minus sort of graphic novel. So, what do you think of the Brian Lee Sung arc? That well, so three issues, much shorter. Which I can't help but wonder if that was intentional. That perhaps Matt Wagner realized that the twelve issues was a bit ungainly, and maybe he wasn't ready yet for such a long storyline really, and, and decided yeah. to give himself a little a little bit smaller uh, you know more discreet arc uh so i think the brian lee sung arc is one of my favorite books from that era and we'll get to why in a, in a minute or two um but i want to ask this question so in that arc which is now called the devil inside 
Brian is slowly being broken by the world he lives in. And Wagner takes real pains to kind of set his world up as being kind of just an endless world of frustrations. But previous to that, in the earlier volume, Brian was kind of together. He was dressed fashionably, he, which is very important in the world the Pander Brothers created. Um, he seemed to be smart. He seemed to have a job going for him. And he seemed to have um, some friends. And then when we pick up, pick up with him in the double inside, his world's kind of shitty. He's alone. He's dressed uncon- unfashionably. Um, and he's kind of an outsider. And I feel like the, the character takes this very abrupt change. Well, I mean, do you think part of that's grief? Like, it is after. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I guess, I guess I'm asking, do you feel the same way? And if so, like, am I right in feeling that that was abrupt or strange? Because there's another argument that occurs to me, which is all of this is his perceptions. And he's gone through this grief and he's starting to have this devil inside him. Right. And we see it. This is where the beautiful storytelling by Wagner really starts, where we see it always on the periphery of all the thoughts he shares with us. This is just beautiful use of parallel narrative by Wagner. Um, so that maybe that's all seeping inside him. And what we're seeing is Brian's internal perception of himself at display by the scenes with the scenes we are seeing on the page. So where Christine kind of saw the world kind of brightly, Brian sees, Brian sees the world darkly. Yeah, well, and I, I think part of that, too, is probably also supposed to be like the corrupting influence of Grindel, too, right? Like, mm-hmm. don't you think that that's probably causing some of that, like, you know, like a Dorian Gray sort of thing? Right. Yeah, I agree with Nick. There's definitely here is where it really comes to the forefront of this idea of the transmission of this entity, of this spirit, this demonic spirit that's taking possession of people. And the way that it seems to be doing it, interestingly enough, given that this is a comic and a textual, you know, textual visual medium, is through uh, text. Uh, Grendel was an author, Hunt Rose, I'm sorry, was a novelist. And he also kept journals and logs And those journals and logs came into the possession of Christine Spar, who used them to write Devil by the Deed. And then she became, after the death of her son, she became possessed by this demonic entity and became a vengeful spirit. And then she died. And then Brian inherited both hers and Hunter Rose's journals. Uh, You know, and Captain Wiggins, again, is a, a, a... supporting character in the storyline and he is desperate to get his hands on those journals uh for his own purposes yeah and then we'll see that he becomes captain wiggins in a, in the next well maybe not the next story arc that we're going to talk about tonight but the what's come to be known as the incubation years he comes to be possessed by the spirit of grendel so i think that Nick has definitely hit the nail on the head there. I think it's fairly overt that possession of these journals and and writings in some way influences these people psychologically okay. or allows that possessive spirit to take hold of them. 
And it gets to the point with Brian, it definitely wasn't this way with with Christine, but with Brian where he's actually, and maybe that speaks to his psychological state that he's sort of coming apart, but he's having like these schizophrenic, you don't know if it's Grendel actually speaking to him or if he's imagining it, but at the bottom of every page, it's Grendel's, the entity's voice speaking to him and sort of tormenting him. And it's the only time in the series where Grendel is given a voice, which makes me think that it's maybe in Brian's head. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what Wagner wants us to feel. Schizophrenia is a good good way of putting it, too. It's his own subconscious, yeah, his own mental illness, egging yeah. him on to do these things. Right, he's having auditory hallucinations. Mm-hmm. And visual. And visual, yeah. Right, and and this is also I, I noticed this is also the the arc where that uh, like street speech becomes apparent, where people are speaking, like the lower classes, the people who are sort of the dregs of society, are speaking in this weird, clipped, rhyming speech. Uh, and this and this starts to really come to the forefront later, but here is where it is like introduced. And it's an interesting counterpoint to the, I guess, the eloquence of, you know, the main characters who are writing and speaking normally. And I I don't know if it's meant to create this counterpoint where uh, it underlines that these people are, you know, exceptional in some way or possessed by language in some way. I I, I can't really... uh, verbalize it but it seems to be intentional to sort of draw you know these these definite lines between those characters who are involved in this transmission of a certain kind of language versus another kind of language well it's kind of like what goes on in the uh like miller's dark knight stuff where you know you start to get the like street gangs that are adopting like Batman-isms and stuff, and that becomes, like, more omnipresent. It felt like that was another thing that was, like, in the zeitgeist at that moment for whatever reason. Yeah, that's a good point. In terms of Brian being articulate, I think that's an interesting point that the previous two Grendels are both writers, um, and Hunter was incredibly prolific. Christine was incredibly popular. Brian's just a stage manager. He's not creative. He is kind of hovering around the creativity. Um, He's not of it. He's just near it. And so he's just not, and maybe you need a certain amount of creativity to express yourself as a single Grendel spirit. Right. And he's not very successful as Grendel either. Let's. He's pathetic. Frank. Yeah, he's (laughs) pathetic. (laughs) That's the, that's the only word I can think of for it. He kills one person almost by accident um, in the park and you know and and then he's killed by detective Wiggins um, who you know he's he sneaks up on detective Wiggins and Wiggins hears him turns around and shoots him point blank so he's <laughs> he's he's a pretty far cry from Hunter Rose who could you know like in the seaboard I think is it called the seaboard massacre where he yeah 
there's a sequence in Devil by the Deed where he takes out something like 40 men. Yeah. In a matter of minutes, so. And I want to talk about. Oh, I want to talk about the beautiful art by Bernie Miro. Um, I I think the work he does in this sequence is just spectacular, and the coloring. I'm not sure who does the coloring in in the collected edition here. Uh, uh, Joe Joe Matt. Oh, it's Joe Matt. Yeah. Who? Yeah, isn't that weird? Joe Matt. School. Yeah. <laughs> he went to school with Matt Wagner at the Philadelphia College. Of okay. Um, because all the all the detail and and elements Moreau adds, where Brian's face just gets continually more covered in hair, where um, Wiggins has this very homoerotic feel to him, which I'm sure is meant to be filtered through Brian's eyes. Also, um, all the curly cues and other elements of Grendel possessing him, um, the fact that he draws every brick on every wall that we see, um, it just makes all of Brian's world feels so tight and claustrophobic. Everything has this overly rendered feel to it that just makes us feel like we're being dragged into the madness along with him. Yeah, it was an excellent choice on Wagner's part to have Miro illustrate this. And it almost seemed like he tailored the storyline to fit Miro's art because Miro has such a specific visual style, um, you know, as evidenced in The Jam, which is also about a pathetic lowlife <laughs> who, you know, uh, makes his own costume. You know, like Brian makes his own costume. You can still see the stitching. So, yeah, the you know, stitching is... Very good, right. He's not even yeah, the stitching is very symbolic there. Right. Like he's coming apart. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, I, definitely. I mean, this that I think the it's the most uh, of all the artists in this original series of Grendel. I think the M Bernie Moreau for this storyline was the was the best match. I just in the last six or eight pages of this story are just so perfectly well done. It's just got this. Um, vitalness to it that just the and it's mostly silent it just perfectly conveys the story just using those perfect images it's very powerful i think yeah and moreau would would go on to color and ink quite a bit of the remainder of the series uh but he he never, never again was he the primary artist on on the series. It's unfortunate, but um, yeah, uh, this this arc is among my favorites of the original series. It's uh, in, in contrast to the um, Christine Spar storyline. It's and, and again, it, it probably benefits from the fact that it's only three issues, but it's incredibly cohesive. Um, very coherent, very tightly, you know, effectively and tightly. It, it, it has three acts. So it, you know, follows this very rigid, dramatic structure, but it pays off. And it's it's a haunting storyline. It's, it's very affecting, uh, extremely pathetic. <laughs> yeah, it has a little bit of Travis Bickle to it. 
Yes. It does. Yeah, it definitely does have that. Did you guys think that he, Wagner, was intentionally making it um, uncertain as to whether or not Brian Lee Sung was actually possessed by Grendel or it wasn't all in his head? I've heard, I've heard other commentators mention that as a possibility, and I, I'm not convinced. I just wondered what you guys thought about that. My take is that this is all in his head and it may be from Grendel or it may not be from Grendel. Um, that that ambiguity is part of what makes it interesting. And when we see in the in that uh, what do you call them the transition issues where people and tribes are taking up the Grendel mask? Yeah. Um, I think in, in a way it doesn't matter if it's the actual Grendel spirit or their feeling of the Grendel spirit, because in the end, it forces the same actions upon them, if that makes sense. Right. I, you know, I mean, there's one instance, I think it's just one panel in in the last chapter where someone is asking Brian a question. He responds just with this cold, dead response, and his eyes are colored red. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me to indicate that that's from the, you know, that that's being directed to the reader and is underlining that he is, in fact, possessed by Grendel. Um, later on, Captain... That Wayne, happens on the page where he's wearing the Superman t-shirt, by the way. It's <laughs> kind of just a funny little element to it. But anyway. Yeah. Um, and, you know... Captain Wiggins in the next storyline, his he has that eyepiece that's got the red glow, this sort of robot robotic eye. And at one point in the incubation years arc it becomes you know it becomes like extremely red and starts shooting out like a laser. And and to me it was to me that that is sort of an ongoing, um, I guess, visual um, illustration of someone being demonically possessed in the in the series. But it it, it seemed like Wagner was being uh, overt at that point that he was in fact possessed by Grendel. Seems like a pretty explicit call out. Do you right. think, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I I tend to believe with most of this of the Grendel stuff that Grendel is like this demonic possessive spirit so that's and I think some people can keep it in control more depending on their willpower you know like I think Hunter Rose was the most successful with it because I because I, Hunter Rose had the most raw ambition maybe um, but yeah I mean I, that's my my view tends to be that it's this malevolent thing that is taking people over especially with where it goes eventually with the series but like it taking over entire societies and stuff yeah good point there so the other thing about this storyline is it's kind of a visual foreshadowing of some of the visual tricks wagner is going to play within the next four issues uh the so-called devil's tales stories and um here we see yet another set of different storytelling elements where Wagner's trying to show that he is really playing and being creative in this series. 
and um, is is not afraid to, in some ways, force the reader to do some work. Right. And again, Matt Wagner is the artist on this on these two short stories that make up these four issues: <clears throat> Devil's Tracks and Devil's Eyes. And they are these great short noir stories that tell little gaps in Devil by the Deed. Right. It was fun with kind of rereading those two stories in juxtaposition, uh, the three stories really in juxtaposition with each other. In one case, uh, a, a call out that takes literally 10 words is explained in a, a whole two issue arc kind of brilliantly to me. And they're drawn in such radically different styles. I mean, Devil's Tracks is what, 25 panels per page on average? Mm -hmm. No word balloons. The dialogue is below the panel, much like Kyle Baker would do. Yeah, yeah, that's a good call out. Um, and then Devil's Eye, is it Devil's Eyes? I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me. Hold on. Devil's Tracks and... I yeah, have the and, and in the omnibus it just says Devil's Tales and it doesn't give you the yeah I'm on comic star Devil's Tracks okay so the that's the Tommy Nuncio storyline that's in yes eighteen nineteen oh that oh no sorry no Devil's Track is sixteen seventeen I'm wrong the storyline is called Devil's Eye Devil Eyes, Eyes. And that's drawn in a uh, Harvey Kurtzman pastiche. Yes. With these vertical, extremely vertical panels. And really with the kind of schizophrenic really words up above it or not yes. schizophrenic. I guess it would, in context, we're supposed to think they are notes or something. Notes to, like for future books. Notes, yeah, like they're written in haste. Both yeah. are real storytelling tour de forces, and um, they take some time to pay off, but they're so smartly done. And we're yeah. really seeing Wagner grow as an artist again, like the growth he, he had from the original Grendel to Devil by the Deed, and then to this is just a quantum leap up. Yeah, I was extremely taken by these issues. And it was the moment where I really came to respect Matt Wagner as a comics artist and as an artist who's willing to take risks uh, and chances. I mean, Devil by the Deed did indicate that he was extremely gifted, uh, but the first 15 issues of the, the Grendel series were, you know, for, for though they had different art styles and they were you know pretty radical art styles uh they were rather straightforward comic storytelling and in this story arc which is framed with captain wiggins sucking down margaritas on a beach on his cop pension <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh even further into the future uh and then it has the um story of lieutenant polk who uncovers this this whole uh this New York uh, police department lieutenant who discovers this 
diamond smuggling operation that's supposedly engineered by Rose. And then the story of Tommy Nuncio, who is sort of just a toss-off character in Devil by the Deed, becomes the main character where he uh, overhears uh, the plan to um, humiliate Argent by having him uh, chase after this holographic Grendel and crash through the window. It's all part of Rose's scheme in Devil by the Deed to turn Stacy Palumbo against Argent and set the whole ball rolling for Stacy finding out that Hunter was in fact Grendel, and then she set up, she she or more or less orchestrated his death and his downfall. And in this storyline, it's about Nuncio overhearing this and then fearing for his life, waiting at any minute that Grendel's going to come, you know, out of the shadows and kill him, which he does naturally. <clears throat> but like I said, the the artwork, the the storytelling was so interesting and unique, and really nobody else was doing this. Even the covers mm-hmm. of Grendel, I mean, we don't really talk about the covers, but the covers were these wraparound covers, and they were uh, the Panda Brothers and, and especially Bernie Moreau, who did uh, these magnificent painted covers, and then Wagner uh, himself did the covers for this story arc. And they're just incredibly striking, uh, really totally different from anything else that was on the stands, very eye-catching. I mean, you knew immediately that whatever was going on in that comic was going to be different from everything else. And um, so, I mean, it was really the moment where I said, wow, you know, I mean, Matt Wagner's really an incredible comics artist, and he's really going to be a major, you know, voice. And I think people in the medium at that point were starting to wake up to that because it wasn't long after this arc that he, I know he did the Demon miniseries, right around the time of Mage, and Mage did make people in the industry aware, aware of him, of course, but I think uh, at that point he was ready to jump into the mainstream, and uh, Demon was a good miniseries that was competent, but uh, it, it, it had some, some pretty significant faults. But at that point, um, in the late 80s, he ended up um, doing the Faces storyline for Legends of the Dark Knight. And I think that was the moment where he eventually made the crossover from, you know, uh, to to being a mainstream comics artist. He's always been an indie guy at heart. Um, and you can he's see that been an indie guy at heart, and, and he's interesting in that way in, the, in that he started out with the indies, unlike a lot of, those indie comics that were being published were by professionals who, you know, uh, had already been in the industry. Um, and he, he kind of was, you know, came um, from a much different path from that kind of like DIY spirit of the early eighties, kind of punk spirit of, you know, well, we can publish our own comic mentality. Um, but he, he had, my point is at that point, I think he had, work through all his growing pains and that this was the point where you realized, you know, he's, he's got it. Like he's, he's got it figured out. And there's so many smart little elements to these stories. You know, the, the Grendel mask in the backgrounds, the way he breaks the story in the first one, um, at the time of the battle where, um, Argent crashes through the wall, crashes through the roof rather. Um, 
where you you've had this beat, this rhythm that's been um, very much built up, and then he just deliberately breaks it, and doesn't just break it in the way that Watchmen breaks it, where you combine multiple panels. He breaks it in that the page literally opens up. It's it's action against white space, and he's basically saying. You've been living inside this box as this person with a limited spectrum on the world, limited view on the world. But these beings who are somehow greater are living outside of that box. So really what he's doing also is taking down the detective by saying, you know, uh, with his art, that you're thinking too small. Your world is not, you, you can play, you can think you're dabbling in this world, but actually this is much bigger and more complicated than you can ever expect ever imagined and that's the right. beauty of this visual storytelling to me which is that um he he puts us in a box and makes us feel confident in this box and then breaks it out in a way that's i don't think i've ever seen this type of effect before and it's really him playing with the two-dimensionality of uh, the comics page in a way that's just really special um and it's very specifically like late 80s, early 90s, when there was a big boom in cartoonists who were doing that sort of thing. I'm going to point to, you know, everything from Thriller to, uh, to Ronin to Breathtaker was doing stuff like that. And this was really just like a feeling of almost a revolutionary feeling. Oh, I agree. There's, there's some, especially in Devil's Tracks, there's so much going on. There's, there's, the, the pacing is is almost on parallel with Hitchcock, I would say. Yeah. Uh, there's these, you know, he has these beats where he keeps repeating this panel of Polk's, a sort of like a reaction shot to just underline how defeated he is, this grizzled, you know, L, uh, New York Police Department lieutenant, you know, world-weary, and, and he has this just downtrodden, defeated look on his face, and he keeps repeating that same panel as a reaction shot um, there's there's scenes where some action is taking place where he's stirring an investigation and he's trailing people and it's I mean it's on parallel with like Vertigo I mean how he he sets the action and and you know if it were if it were if it had a cinematic parallel it would be that level of technical brilliance. You're talking Hitchcock's Vertigo, not DC Comics Vertigo. No, yeah, I'm talking I see that. Vertigo. Uh, Nick, have you read these comics recently? Uh, no, no, I'm not. I, I'm basically the ones that I've read are like the first omnibus and, uh, and then uh, I'm trying to remember which other ones I've had because most of the, there's so much with Grendel that like, it's, it's hard to, oh, the other one I, it was the Grendel Batman crossover too, which is Hunter Rose and is interesting so i have to say going back and rereading these four or five different storylines i was very impressed by matt wagner's growth and his ambitiousness and his restlessness um these are still works by a younger cartoonist i'm saying that because he's now in his early 60s i believe um, but at the same time um they have such a power to them even the issues I didn't like as much, which would be the uh, Christine Spar issues, have a restlessness and energy that I think is compelling and makes it worth reading. 
Yeah, agreed. And I mean, like, even when when it doesn't necessarily like work, work, just the the energy of it and just everything that Wagner is throwing out there and experimenting with, um, especially in the in the context of the time and what was going on, because I feel like him and Miller were like breaking similar ground at the around the same time, but in different realms. Just one last observation on this final story arc. It seemed to me that Wagner was also in his own way, acknowledging that Hunter Rose was the most popular Grendel and Mm -hmm. the version of Grendel that audiences seem most taken with. Yeah. Well, I mean, he kept coming back to Hunter Rose, right? Right. Right. Exactly. He would go back. I mean, this was the beginning of him returning to Hunter Rose over and over again. And the only Grendel that, he has gone back to nearly as much as Hunter Rose as Grendel Prime, whom audiences are taken with, you know, for for different reasons. But those two iterations of Grendel seem to be the most captivating for most audiences of this comic. And it's not hard to understand why. I mean, they they do seem to have the sort of pop culture appeal that's well established insofar as Grendel is, you know, more or less a a Bruce Wayne Batman sort of character and Grendel Prime is kind of a Terminator sort of <laughs> yeah, character. Yeah, that's a great way of putting um, it. Like yeah, Cable, so, too. Just a little bit of that. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, that, this seemed to be, this story arc seemed to be crucial in that sense, too, of, of Wagner recognizing where the true meat of the story is in so far as, you know, wh- which of his storylines were the most, you know, the, the, the storylines that he pulled off the best. And so, you know, I, while I find the spar and storyline problematic and I, and I think the Brian Lee Sung storyline is, one of the most compelling. I do, I do recognize that um, the Devil by the Deed storyline and and this story arc were it, the the character seems to draw something out of Matt Wagner himself, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. where it does it does seem to result in some of his his best work. I think he's more invested, especially in Hunter Rose than any of the other Grendels, and it shows. So next time, we're going to go even further away from Christine and especially Hunter. Uh, Some comics I haven't reread since I first picked them up, wow, many years ago now. Uh, I'm really intrigued to read these storylines. Right. Now that I've said that Hunter Rose was his best character, we're going to talk about another 21 issues where Hunter Rose doesn't even appear <laughs> <laughs> any last words on uh this set of issues uh they're Not. available in the omnibus one uh the devil by the deed is an omnibus one the hunter rose volume and the remainder of them except for the um early stuff is in volume two which collects issues one through 19 
and the Stacy Palumbo miniseries that we talked about. And the archive stuff is in its own volume. So it's easy to get a hold of. I think everything's still in print. So Yeah, it seems like it, you, you can find it used pretty often, too, because I always see the Grendel collections anytime at a bookstore. Yeah, and the, and the individual issues themselves are not hard to find either. Oh, thank you.